Now we are starting uh, again. This is if you're joining us for the first time. This is part two of something that I called the light shines in the darkness last week. So this is kind of part two, and, and I'm just uh, using this John passage as really a launch, launching off point uh, because I really want to kind of look at the world uh, around us and, and the reality of who God is. And I think it's improper, it's proper and important for us to have a proper biblical understanding of the world in which we live, and then obviously a proper understanding of the person of God, especially at this time of the year uh, when we stop to celebrate Christmas. Because there's a woeful lack of understanding biblically for both the reason of Christmas and the person of Jesus Christ, and I want us to want to help us out biblically to think bo- think well on both of these issues. So to celebrate Christmas properly, it, it's important to understand that Christmas is not just a celebration of the birth of Christ, but listen, Christmas is really a celebration of the mercy of God towards men. It's a celebration of the mercy of of God towards men, and it's a great demonstration of God's love, as we understand specifically the reason why Christ has come. Now, Now again, last week I introduced this portion of Scripture, and I began to draw our attention to certain things that caught my attention as I read back through that. And the first one was the reality of God uh, in the beginning, right, that phrase, uh, the fact that God is, that, that he is the cause of all things. In the beginning, God, as it says in Genesis 1.1. And I pointed out that the vast majority of the world in which we live today doesn't believe that anymore uh, because the vast majority of people living in the world in the time in which we live in great error have rejected the word of God. And so I kind of use this as a launch-off point, and we kind of work through our our way through the first three verses and talked about a few issues, John 1 and 1. So in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things came into being by Him and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. It's a wonderful description of the Eternal One. It's a wonderful description of the pre-incarnate Christ. We focus a lot at Christmas at, at the baby in the manger, but where was he before that? So this is a picture of that. It's the pre-incarnate Christ, the one who is God of very God, the one who has called all things into being, and apart from him, nothing would exist. And stop and think about that just for a moment. That there's more to that baby in a manger that looks at first blush. He's the one who called all things into being, and with, apart from him, nothing would exist. Now you say, well, how do you know specifically that those verses are talking about the person of Jesus? Well, look down at verse 14. Verse 14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. That verse is basically saying that God became a man, that God took on humanity, the infinite became finite. Eternity entered into time. Uh, That which is invisible became visible. The Creator entered into His creation. Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology says this uh, of the Incarnation. He says it is by far the most amazing miracle of the entire Bible. Far more amazing than the resurrection and more amazing even than the creation of the universe. The fact that the infinite, omnipotent, eternal Son of God could become a man and join himself to human nature forever so that infinite God became one person with finite man and will remain, in, uh, or, or will remain for eternity the most profound miracle and the most profound, uh, profound mystery in all the universe. God steps into time. He takes on our humanity. He becomes a man. It's an amazing reality. And you see that uh, uh, the, the result of that truth, the result of that reality that God becomes a man. In a quote that you maybe see on Christmas cards, or perhaps you even quote it yourself at times, especially around Christmas, it's out of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 9-6. Listen, for a child will be born to us, a son will be what? Given. A child will be born, but a son is given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Who are we talking about when we consider that baby lying there in a manger? It's this this person. Again, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God. And all things came into being by Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. Again, verse 14, And the Word became flesh. That's the incarnation. And he dwelt among us. Uh, The word literally means to pitch a tent or to tabernacle. He pitched a tent. It's a metaphor for putting on a human body. 
And we beheld his glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now that word begotten uh, is uh, in, in the Greek it's monogenes, and it comes from two words, mono meaning one, soul, single, only, and then genomai, which means become. I become or I am, I exist. Uh, genomai is related to another Greek word called genes, or, or we would understand it genesis, right? Genealogy. Uh, so basically monogenes, the only begotten, means he's the only one of that kind. He's the only one of that family. He's the only one of that class. He's the only one, listen, who is 100% God and 100% man. That's who the person of Jesus Christ is. He's the God-man. 100% deity, 100% humanity. The only one in existence like him. Now, the truth is the vast majority of the world doesn't believe any of that. The vast majority of the world rejects the very idea of a creator who's who's caused all things. Uh, and has believed the lie of evolution, which says, again, nobody times nothing times time is the cause of all things. Now, why is that? Why does the world reject the creator because the world doesn't want to be accountable to him? Right? The world doesn't accept the divine biblical revelation of creation because the world doesn't want to be accountable to God. And the world also rejects the very idea of God becoming a man because the world sits in darkness. And I spoke on that issue a, a lot last time, uh, how, how the, the world is in darkness. And that darkness really speaks of evil, moral evil. It speaks of sin and rebellion. It, it speaks to those who rejected the truth and embraced lies. And darkness really describes the character and the nature of the unbeliever. The Bible says that men are in darkness. Remember, and I also told you, the Bible says men are also darkness. They're not just in darkness, but darkness is in them. That's a biblical description of man. And the Bible says that men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And and again, that's the practice of mankind. That's the nature of man. That's the heart of man. Uh, He is in love with darkness. And again, that's the world in which we live today. It's a world full of darkness. It's dominated by sin. It's under control of sin. I don't know that I have to work hard to prove that reality. Even unbelievers see that. There's something desperately wrong, something desperately dark in this world. We live in a world where where men call evil good and good evil. We live in a world where men substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. Bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. It's a world turned upside down and a world turned upside down in rebellion. And a dark world sits under the judgment of God. So again, for the unbeliever, they're darkened in their understanding. They're excluded from the life of God. Uh, The Bible says because of the ignorance that is in them because of the hardness of their heart. And the Bible would call that sin. And again, you see that everywhere. Hardness, lack of understanding, ignorance, especially with the person of God. It's called sin. You see it everywhere around us. Now, 1 John 3 and 4 says sin is the transgression of the law. Sin is breaking God's rules, God's laws, violating God's standards. Sin stands in utter rebellion against God. Sin is defiance against his person. Sin plots out treason against him. Sin wants to overthrow him in the sinner's life. Sin is shaking your fist in the face of God saying, I will not have you rule over me. I will not do what you want to do or what you ask me to do. I'll do what I want. Sin is living beyond the boundaries that God puts up. Sin is saying that God is not in charge. There's no rule or authority except man himself. And sin really is God's would-be murderer. Sinner would kill God if he could. Sinner wants to dethrone God. The sinner wants to un-God God. If the sinner would have his way, there would be no God but the sinner himself. And sin really is ingratitude towards God. Sin really spits in the face of God as the word slaps him. Because everything that a man owes in his life all comes from God. Your very breath. Your life. Everything you enjoy, from the sunrise to the sunset. Everything that is beautiful in this world, that all comes from God. And sin seeks to destroy the one who gave us all good things. And the Bible says sin is really insanity because God has promised to judge sin. And the Bible is replete with warnings about the promise of certain judgment that will come upon men in sin that, who remain in darkness. And for men who remain in darkness, men who are Continual rebellion against God. God promises a certain terrifying expectation of judgment. 
The fury of, fury of fire that consumes the adversaries. As the Bible warns, it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And, and again, our God is a consuming fire. God judges sin. And he will do that very thing. Because again, the Bible says the wages of sin is death, both physical and eternal. And the fact that seems to pass over everybody is that all men die. And the fact that all men die is proof positive that all men are infected by this thing called sin. Oh, I pray that you listen to me this morning because the reality is death is coming from every one of us. And no one's going to escape it. And the fact that death is coming is proof positive that men, all men are infected with this thing called sin because the wages of sin is death. Now Paul makes a sweeping indictment against all of humanity in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, where he says this, he says, there's none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's no one who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become useless. There's no one who does good. There's, no, there, there's not even one. He says their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep on deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, destruction and misery are in their past, the path of peace they have not known. Verse 18 of Romans 3 says, there's no fear of God before their eyes. That's the world in which we live. The Bible says in verse 23 of that chapter, all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. Romans chapter, chapter 6, verse 23 again says, the wages of sin is death. So again, every single one of us are sinners. Not one righteous, no, not one. Ever since Adam, the first created man, ever since the fall, there have only been sinners born into this world. Nothing but sinners in the entire human race. And as a result of that, as a result of sin, evil dominates everything. Evil dominates the mind, the heart, the thinking of men. It's sin that has caused all the depravity, the corruption, the pollution in this world. And again, the Bible says that men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. They, they love their sin. Sin brings them under the dominion, dominate the dominion under the domination of Satan, under his control, under his power. And again, sin alienates the sinner from God, and sin brings nothing but judgment. And again, all sin is really insanity. Not only does God have a, a promise of judgment on sin, but God is God. God is in charge, not man. God is the one who declares how things are, not man. And again, God has promised in his word to bring his wrath and eternal destruction on those who are in rebellion against him, all those who are in sin. And again, the Bible says the reality is the sinner can't do anything about his own sin. The sinner can't do anything of his own accord to deal with his sin. The Bible says without question, sin is humanly, humanly incurable. Man can't remove sin from his own life or stop sinning any more than the Ethiopian can change his skin color or the leopard, ch leopard change his spots, as the prophet Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 13, 23. There's nothing that a man can do to save himself from the life-destroying, devastating effect of sin, both in time and eternity. It's sin that has led to every kind of human sadness and heartache and sorrow and tragedy in this fallen world. And again, there's nothing that any human being can do on his own to save himself or escape the promise of coming eternal wrath that God has upon sin. As sinners bent on evil can't deliver themselves. Now I think perhaps one of the most devastating realities of sin in a man's life is how sin has so negatively affected his thinking. Because man in sin doesn't believe anything that I just said from God's Word. There are some of you who are listening to me this morning, either in the room or perhaps on the live stream. You think everything that I've just said is utterly ridiculous. You don't believe a word of it. You don't believe in the reality of the existence of God, to whom you are accountable as the one who created everything in this universe, including you. You don't believe that God became a man. You don't believe that this world sits in darkness and that God has judgment on sin and that you're in a terrifying place facing eternal punishment unless you repent and believe upon the person of Jesus Christ. Some of you don't believe any of that. <clears throat> Some of you think and, that I'm kind of some backwards, archaic, throwback, hellfire and brimstone preacher that's just trying to scare people. 
when the reality is I'm just trying to tell you the truth. I want you to know the truth from God's word. And out of a great heart of love and compassion for you and for your eternal soul, I beg you to listen. But some of you, <clears throat> some of you will refuse to listen because you love your own sin more than you love your own eternal soul. Therefore, you're going to take your chances. You're going to take your chances, and when you come to the end of your life, you're hoping that when the end comes, that's it. Nothing else. Nothing exists in the future. Again, you're hoping that when the end comes, when you take your last breath, it's all over. You're hoping that is the scenario that is true, choosing to reject divine revelation that says it's not true. The Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die, and then comes the judgment. You're hoping that God's attribute of love will override or overrule his attribute of justice, which the Bible says it will not. You're exactly who the Bible says you are, a fool. Because it's the fool that says in his heart there is no God, Psalm 14. And it's only the fool who's steeped in sin who refuses to take the step that is necessary for them to be rescued from this condition of calling out to God for mercy and believing upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I beg you this moment to stop and consider and do that very thing. Beg God for mercy. Mercy to open your eyes. Mercy to unstop your ears. That you might hear the truth, repent and live and come to Christ. Because men sit in darkness and they are in a desperate condition. Utterly indifferent to the person of God, the holiness of God. And it's completely irrational. And it's completely irrational of men who sit in darkness and refuse Christ when it comes to the fact of one's own death. Men fear death and rightly so. Because every man knows deep down inside that God is. Every man knows deep down inside that God is the creator. That God exists. And every man knows that he's personally accountable to God. Because God has put that knowledge upon every man's conscience. But men suppress the truth and unrighteousness. That's Romans chapter 1. And again, men fear death. And rightly for they should because death is coming. And again, there's nothing that any of us in this room can do to stop it. I don't care what your job is. I don't care what your profession. I don't care how much money you make. Death is coming, and there's nothing you can do to stop it. That's truth. And the fact is all men die. That's truth. And then comes judgment. No one escapes death, and death is proof positive that all men are in sin, and sin has negatively affected each and every man in this world. But again, nevertheless, men still stand in rebellion against God. They reject God. They reject what God's word says. And this is the tragedy of all tragedy. They reject God's mercy. They reject God's mercy, offer of mercy because they're in rebellion against God, sitting in darkness and in the shadow of death. Now, when you come to Christmas for the reason of Christmas, the reason for Christmas is the reality of everything that I've just said. You said, boy, this is the most odd Christmas Eve sir. Well, this is reality. I'm not going to give you Santa Claus and reindeer. I'm going to give you the truth because that's what we all need. We need desperate confrontation with the truth. The very reason for Christmas is because of the reality of everything that I just said. That all men are in sin and rebellion against the Holy God, facing again both physical and eternal death. And again, man in sin is facing the wrath of God and in the utter terror of eternal conscious torment from which there's never any hope of escape. And again, the reason for Christmas is that men are in this desperate need of a Savior. They're, they're in need of deliverance. They're in need of being rescued from the position that they find themselves in before a holy God. Men are in desperate need, and listen, God is rich in mercy. God is rich in mercy. And that's the very reason that Christ has come into the world, to save sinners. That's the reason for Christmas. Listen, because of the tender mercy of our God. The very fact that all men are in sin, that men are utterly incapable of doing anything to save themselves from the problem of their own sin. All men are in desperate need, and they need to understand that. 
And if help is to come, it has to come from outside of us. If help is to come, it has to come from heaven. Now, in order to have a proper understanding of Christmas, I'm going to give you four things to kind of hold our thoughts around to, to consider, four things to understand if you're going to have a proper understanding of Christmas. I'll give them to you, and I'll run back through them again so you don't have to write them down at the moment. So if you're going to have a proper understanding of Christmas, then you have to understand who Jesus is. You can have a proper understanding of Christmas, you have to understand who Jesus is. Number two, you need to know the nature and character of God who sends him. Third, you need to know why Jesus is present in the world, why, why he has come. And then fourth, you need to have an understanding of your desperate need of him. So four truths that we'll work our way through, and I'll repeat those headings as we work our way through that. So that's what John does. That's why I launching off on this John passage again. That's what he does in the first part of the text. He introduces Jesus. Again, not from birth, but from all eternity. All the other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, they start with certain aspects of Jesus from his birth. Uh, they present the truth concerning the baby in the manger. But John goes back a step further. Uh, again, uh, not just from birth, but from all eternity. Because men, if they're going to understand Christmas and understand the truth properly, they need to have a, a proper understanding exactly of who that baby in the manger is. Men need to know that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the son of the living God. He's none other than God incarnate, God in the flesh. Now again, I went through a lot of this last week, so just by way of a, a quick review, I'll just give you a few highlights uh, this morning to consider before we move forward. John 1 and 1, in the beginning, in our K. When creation came into existence, in the beginning was the Word. So back before the beginning of time, beyond the beginning of creation, was the Word, the Logos. And basically, from a Jewish understanding, it's God's divine wisdom revealed. It's the one who, who reveals God to men. John 1 verse 18 says, No man has seen God at any time. Only The only begotten who's in the bosom of the Father has revealed him or explained him or declared him or made him known depending on your translation that's the truth of who jesus is he's the word who he's the divine re the revealer of, uh, of the person of god and he does it by word he does it by deed we've gone through that when we've gone through the gospel of john by his his power the power of christ the the grace of christ the compassion of christ the mercy of christ god incarnate think about all the interactions with christ in his ministry towards men, how he dealt with them with great compassion, great love. The religious leaders of Israel were off on the side. They would not interact with sinners. Christ interacted with sinners. Christ, one of the most remarkable things in the Old Testament or the New Testament is Christ touched the leper. Religious leaders would never do that. Great grace, great compassion, great love for men. In the beginning was the Word. Now the word was is a continual action, past. So eternally and continually in the past was the Word. Again, it's John reinforcing the eternal preexistence of the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Prostan theon, face to face, uh, the Word was with God. Uh, two members of the Trinity are, are being described here uh, the, in, in one verse, the the the, the Word, who is none other than the incarnate Christ, the Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and then God the Father, two, uh, two members of the Trinity face-to-face -face in communion. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was, uh, in the, in what the Word was God, was with God, and the Word was God, verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. Verse 3 says, All things came into being by Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that it's come into being. Again, it's just saying he's the creator. He's the one who stands outside of time. Has to be. If he's the one who created all things, he created time also. He's eternal. He stands outside of time. Verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. He's the creator. He's the one who gives life on a physical uh, sense uh, because he's the source of life, and he's also the source of eternal life that he freely and abundantly gives to men who repent and, and believe upon him. And it also says he's the light of men. Again, light brings illumination. Light allows us to see. Light offers sight to every man, especially men who sit in darkness. And Jesus said in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. 
John 12, 46, I have come as the light into the world that everyone who believes in me may not remain in darkness. That's Christ. God in the flesh. He's come into the world as light to shine into the darkness, to reveal who God is to men so that men might know him. So that men might be rescued from the darkness, that they might be delivered from the darkness. That everyone who believes in him may not remain in the darkness. Again, John 12, verse 46. Verse 5 says, And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it, or the darkness did not overcome it. Uh, John's saying, look, this uh, kingdom around us is Satan's kingdom. It's a kingdom of darkness. It's a kingdom of his evil forces. And again, the, the darkness has tried repeatedly to stop the one who is life and light to men. There is a, <coughs> excuse me, a spiritual realm that is going on behind the scenes that so often we pay no attention to. There's a battle in the heavenlies, if you will. And this kingdom of darkness has tried desperately to extinguish him, the one who is light and life. Uh, the kingdom of darkness has tried to wipe out the nation of Israel because from the nation of Israel comes the Messiah. The, the, the kingdom of darkness has tried to murder uh, all the newborn children at the time that Christ was born into the world because the kingdom of darkness was trying to put out the light and life of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness does not comprehend it or does not overcome it. He's basically saying the darkness has not been able, nor will it ever be able to extinguish the light, to put it out, to defeat the one who's both life and light. Verse 6 says, There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness that he might bear witness to the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came in bear, to bear witness to the light. Uh, again, this is none other than uh, John the Baptist. And, and John the Baptist, we spent a, quite a long time last Lord's Day in Luke chapter 1 looking at the prophecy of Zechariah, who has been the recipient of God's great kindness in his life, the priest Zechariah, he's been the great recipient of God's great kindness in his life and his, the, the life of his wife Elizabeth. Uh, they're both old, uh, uh, old man and old woman, well beyond childbearing years. Yet to God, uh, God has granted to them a miraculously born son. Again, John the Baptist, he's the forerunner of the Messiah. He's the one been prophesied and foretold of promise through the Old Testament. Again, there came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came for a witness that he might bear witness to the light. So again, that whole Luke uh, chapter 1 passage, starting in verse 67 all the way to the end of the chapter pretty much, verse 79, just a tremendous portion of Scripture. Zacharias, you remember, is, is aware of the fact that God is interfering into the affairs of men because that's the only way that men can be saved. If help is going to come, it has to be alien to mankind because mankind can't solve his own problems because sin is humanly incurable. So God has to interfere into the affairs of men if rescue is going to be, uh, if rescue is going to happen. So again, Zacharias is aware that God is interfering in the affairs of men, that he's going to bring redemption. He's going to bring deliverance to this world. This world that again sits in a desperate condition before a holy God. And again, he knows this miraculously born son, this infant John is going to be the long foretold and long anticipated prophet who would come right before the Messiah, the Savior. And Zacharias knows at this very moment that Messiah is being formed in the, in the, the womb of the Virgin Mary because they had, uh, Mary had spent uh, months with them uh, as she was also with child, along with uh, Elizabeth with child. So again, Zacharias, you picture it, Zacharias has his son in his arms. He never thought he'd have a child. He's praising God. And he's looking at this infant son, and Zechariah says in Luke chapter 1, verse 76, he says, You child will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord and prepare his ways. Again, this is the forerunner. You'll be the prophet of the Most High. Again, the one the Old Testament promised, prophesied before the Messiah came. There would be an Elijah-like prophet who would prepare the way, make smooth the path. And here's the reason. To give, verse 77 of that chapter says, to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sin. Because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high shall visit us. To shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet to the way of peace. God desires that men would be saved. God desires that men would receive salvation. God desires that men would receive salvation and the knowledge of the sin because that's the nature and character of our God. One of the greatest lines in the Bible because of the tender mercy of our God. Deep down, 
Uh, it's a kind of a funny word. I didn't put it in my notes, but it's a kind of a funny word, splankna. It just means in the gut, in the bowels. Is literally what the word means. So deep down within the very inner being of God, in his gut, so to speak, in, in his inner core, there's a deep desire for God to show mercy to men. He has an intense burning desire to show favor, to be kind, to be compassionate towards sinners who are in rebellion against him. And that's the repeated theme of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, Psalm 136, verse 10, give thanks to the Lord for his good. His mercy endures forever. Ephesians 2, verse 4, God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. That's God. That's his nature. That's his character. He is rich in mercy. He wants to extend mercy. He wants to extend kindness and goodwill and compassion. He has a deep love for the lost. And the Bible puts forward the truth that God is more inclined to mercy than he is to wrath. He's more inclined to mercy than he is to wrath because he delights in mercy. Extending mercy pleases him. Micah 7, verse 18, Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over rebellious acts of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever. Here it is, because he delights in his unchanging love. He delights in mercy. Lamentations three thirty three. He does not afflict willingly or grieve the sons of men. Now, the great theologian Thomas Watson says this. He says, acts of severity are forced from God. Or acts of judgment are forced from God. He does not afflict willingly. He says a bee naturally gives honey. It stings only when it's provoked. So God does not punish till he can bear it no longer. God would rather deal with you in mercy than in wrath. But he will bring wrath if you remain in rebellion. Jeremiah forty four twenty two. So the Lord was no longer able to endure it. Because of the evil of your deeds, because of the abominations which you have committed. Thus your land has become a ruin, an object of horror and a curse, without an inhabitant as it is this day. Again, Watson, the acts of severity are forced from God. He doesn't afflict willingly because he delights in mercy. It's one of the most wonderful aspects, attributes of God. His desire to show mercy. Now, there's a couple words in the Old Testament that are used uh, to describe mercy. Rakam and Hesed. And it's basically goodness, kindness, faithfulness. Sometimes compassion, but those are all the same kinds of ideas that describe God's mercy. There's basically one word in the New Testament, Alois, for mercy. And, and if you were to define what, what really is God's mercy, you, you could say it like this. It's God's condescending love that reaches down to meet our needs without merit or demerit, meaning whether we deserve it or not. It's just God's condescending love to reach down and meet our needs. Mercy has within it the idea of compassion and pity and uh, a, a superior uh, withholding affliction from uh, some uh, pain or suffering that is due uh, to an inferior. Uh, I saw... Uh, uh, um, a definition that I'd never seen before just a couple days ago. Uh, Mercy described as to bring help to the wretched. To bring help to the wretched. Again, it's the compassionate grace of God. He, He wants to do good to those people who don't even deserve it. That's God. God's interfered in the affairs of mankind. He sent the miraculous son, this child John, who'd be the forerunner to tell people to get ready that God is coming. He's coming in mercy, but he'll bring judgment if you reject that mercy. Again, John, the one who comes right before the Messiah to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins, again, because of the tender mercy of our God. Again, God would rather show mercy than judgment. He would rather deal with men in compassion than to bring wrath. And then he says this, because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high shall visit us. I told you that's a reference to the Messiah, the day spring from on high. <coughs> Verse 79 of that chapter says, to shine upon those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death to guide our feet to the way of peace. That, that's the compassionate heart 
That's the compassionate heart of God towards men. Listen to me. But not men who have it together. That's the compassionate heart of God towards all men. To show mercy to, and compassion towards men like you and me who don't have it all together. Men who are in bondage to sin. Men who are oppressed by Satan. Men who are sitting in the darkness in the shadow of death. He wants to show mercy so that he can, he can bring us to the knowledge of salvation, the, the forgiveness of, of sin, to guide, us, to guide our feet to the way of peace and more specifically to the person of peace. That's who we're talking about when we're talking about Christmas. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Verse 7 says he came as a witness that he might bear witness to the light that all men might believe through him. John grew up. Boy, he became a mighty, powerful preacher. A bold preacher. Jesus said of him in Matthew eleven eleven, he says, "Among men, I tell you, born, um, among those born of women, there's not a not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist." He had the great privilege and responsibility of pointing people to their desperate need of the one who was coming right after him. That would be the person of Jesus Christ, and he was a very straightforward, confrontational preacher who called on men to confess their sin and repent. And so direct and confrontational was he that he was arrested and had his head separated from his body because he dared to confront Herod in his sin. But Herod needed to be confronted. (coughs) Because Herod stood guilty, just like all men are guilty before a holy God. Verse 8 says he was not the light, but he came that he might bear witness to the light. I mean, John has one passion in life. It's Jesus Christ. He has one passion to point people to the person of Jesus Christ. Verse 9 says, there was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. Again, the true light is the person of Jesus Christ. He is that true light. He's the genuine one. Uh, He's the ultimate light. Again, he's the one whom Israel has been looking for with great anticipation throughout all of its existence. He is the promise from the Old Testament, the promised sunrise from on high. Yet they're going to reject him. Verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. So the light has come into the world of darkness to remove men from the realm of darkness. And to take them to the light, to take them to the path of peace, to to grant them forgiveness of sin. But men refused to come. Men refused to come to the light. They did not and would not receive him. They rejected him when he came. And their rejection is willful. Unbelief in the person of Jesus Christ is never a matter of lack of evidence. Rejection of the person of Jesus Christ is always a matter of the will. It's a matter of the heart. It's a willful rejection. Again, it shows a love for sin and a love for darkness. Because men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. So again, to have a proper understanding of Christmas, number one, you have to have a proper understanding of who Jesus is. Verse 14 says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We behold his glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is none other than God come in the flesh. Promised again from Genesis 3 onward, the seed of the woman who would come and crush the serpent's head and make all things right into this world that sin has come into. The promised one. The one prophesied in in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will be with child, bear a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel. Again, spoken of in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Fast forward the story some 700 years to the New Testament, to the time of the birth of Christ, just before his coming. Luke chapter 1, verse 30. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for... 
You have found favor with God, for behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. For that reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. Angel of the Lord appears also to Joseph, who is Mary's betrothed, in a dream in Matthew chapter 1, verse 20. Saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear you a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place that was spoken um, by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, shall bear a son, that shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Again, that's out of Isaiah uh, chapter 7. 700 years later, here it comes just like God promised. Because Christmas is about God coming into the world. Christmas is about God coming into this dark world, God incarnate, the light of the world, the promised one, who has come to remove the darkness. So you've got to understand, number one, who Jesus is. Number two, I said if you're going to understand uh, Christmas properly, you have to understand the character and the nature of God who has sent him. And again, the nature of God who has sent Christ into the world is that he desires to be merciful to men. Because of the tender mercies of our God, he desires to rescue, he desires to redeem. To treat men and women who are in rebellion against him in kindness rather than in wrath. Because of the tender mercies of our God. And not only is God merciful to men, not only does God desire to treat them in kindness rather than in his anger, he's also an immensely a God who loves. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John 15.13, Christ talking about the sacrifice that he's about to make of himself. He says, Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Paul, Romans 5, verse 8, God demonstrates his own love towards us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. John, in his letter, 1 John 4, 9, by this the love of God has manifested us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that, he, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. It's the one who brings reconciliation, atonement. And God has presented or, or uh, commended his love to the world uh, through his son. He wants the world to know of his love. This world of fallen men who don't love him. This world of wicked men. Worthless men. Yet the love of God for this world, this rebellious world, is so much that he gave his only begotten son because that's the nature of God-like love. It gives. It sacrifices for others. It's a magnanimous love, a large love, a, a love for the entire world of men and women who would repent and believe on Christ so they would not perish. Which leads us to the third point, to understanding Christmas properly. You need to know why Jesus is present in the world. Why has he come? John 3.16, everybody knows, right? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life or everlasting life. John 3.17 says, For God did not send the Son of the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. Why? Because apart from him, men are what? Perishing. Verse 16. He gave his only begotten Son, and whoever believes should not perish. Apart from Christ, men are perishing. Men are about to receive God's final eternal judgment. Therefore, Jesus has come to save Christ in the world, the very fact of Christmas, proves again the utter inability of man to do anything to save himself from the problem of his own sin. Because again, Christ has been sent into this world for the express purpose to, to die, to deliver us from the power and the, the penalty of our sin. The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 1.10 that God sent his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, listen, who delivers us from the wrath to come. 
wrath, orge, God's settled opposition to sin. God sent his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now in the Old Testament, there are basically three words that are translated uh, deliver. And these kind of, these words have basically the same kind of idea. Deliver, rescue, save. And, And within these words... There's an idea of a dramatic deliverance, a dramatic rescue. Uh, we, we understand there's a certain sense of drama even in the English word deliverance. So when someone is delivered, they're being rescued out of some kind of severe danger or situation that they're in. And accordingly, for someone to be delivered, it carries with it the idea that the person doesn't have the ability in and of themselves to rescue themselves. It's an impossibility for them. They, they can't extract themselves from the situation that they find in. Therefore, they need to be delivered. They need to be rescued from this situation or for some person or from some power that is greater than themselves. And that's exactly the picture you see in the Old Testament with the word deliver. Because God is a deliverer. God is the deliverer. And God is the deliverer and man is the one who's being delivered. God is a rescuer and man is the one who's being rescued. That great concept out of the Old Testament is seen everywhere, that God is a deliverer. Paul even quotes it in uh, uh, Romans 11, verse 26. He says, just as it is written, referring to the Old Testament, he says, the deliverer will come out of Zion. God is a deliverer. And not only is God a deliverer, he's the one who's provided men the plan of deliverance. And not only is God a deliverer who provides men the plan of deliverance, he provides the person of deliverance. And when you come to the New Testament, nothing changes. There's several words in the New Testament that mean to deliver or to rescue. Probably the most common word that we would be familiar with is sozo. It's a very familiar word. It just means to be to, to save. Save, saved, salvation. Also means to be rescued or to be delivered. So most of the time when it's in the New Testament, it speaks about salvation or being saved. Uh, it also can be physical rescue, but it's talking about a, a spiritual salvation, a spiritual rescue. So again, when you look at the concepts of both Old Testament and New Testament, you see these words deal with this concept of being delivered, rescued, taken out of a dangerous predicament or situation, and being put into a better place, a better situation. And again, it's a very important concept for us to keep in our minds because of the tender mercy of God. He's a deliverer. Christ is a deliverer. Both words are fine. We tend to use the word save more than we do deliver. But both words mean the same thing, to be rescued. But when we use the word save, you're really talking about being delivered. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. There's salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved or delivered, rescued. Acts 16, 27. The Philippian jailer had been roused out of his sleep and seen the prison doors opened. He drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. He called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas after he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be delivered? And they said, Acts chapter 16, verse 31, they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved. You shall be delivered, you and your household. It's a very interesting conversation there. The Philippian jailer, never gone to church, never gone to religious class. But he knew what? He knew deep down inside him, he needed to be what? Saved. What shall I do to be saved? He needed to be rescued. He needed to be rescued. He needed to be delivered. The question is, from what? Or more appropriately, the question is, from whom? And the answer is, he knew deep down inside, he needed to be delivered delivered from God. Because God is a holy God. And man and sin has offended him greatly. All men need to be saved from the wrath to come. Because, again, the Bible says it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Romans 1, verse 18, the 
wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculation, and their foolish heart was darkened. Men knows. Men know. Men know that there's a God whom they're accountable to. Again, that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. So they are without excuse. Jailer knew. Jailer knew he was guilty. Jailer knew he was facing the wrath of God. He knew he needed to be delivered. Likewise, all men are guilty before God. All men are desperately in need of deliverance. And God is a deliverer. He has a plan of deliverance. And that plan of deliverance involves the person whom he has sent, the person of deliverance. Uh, Of course, that's none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And the plan of deliverance, God calls it, the Bible calls it substitution. The Bible says, 2 Corinthians 5.21, that God made him who knew no sin to be, uh, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Or Again, 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin. That would be the person of Jesus Christ. To be sin, to be the sin bearer on our behalf, that, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So God took the person of Jesus Christ, perfect God, perfect man, incarnate, come into the world to rescue. And God treated him as if he had committed every, every sin that every person who would ever believe had committed, although the fact is Christ committed none of them. The, Holy, the second person of the Holy Trinity leaves eternity. He comes into time. He comes and puts on our flesh. He's born of the virgin's womb. He takes on that humanity, the perfect God-man, uh, again, that's Christmas, the arrival of the Deliverer. And the perfect God-man has been sent for one express purpose into this world to die. To die for the sins of men. To be the perfect substitute. And again, as holy God, he's the only substitute. Sinless. To bear the guilt of our sin. And the Bible says that God punished the person of Jesus Christ in our place that Jesus Christ, again, will die upon Calvary's cross as our substitute, again, as the sin-bearer. Isaiah 53, verse 4, Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and the chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. Again, Christ is going to go to the cross. He's not going to suffer for his own transgression because he has none. But he's come. He's going to go to the cross and suffer for our transgressions. And out of the love of God, God sends the Son to be the bearer of sin, the burden, to bear the burden of our sin, to pay the penalty of sin, again, which is death. The wages of sin is what? Death. Somebody's got to pay that penalty. Isaiah 53.10 says, The Lord is pleased to crush him, speaking of Jesus Christ, putting him to grief, if he would render himself a guilt offering. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ does upon Calvary's cross. He was the one who was born for the express purpose to die. To render himself an offering for, for, for sin, and he's done that. And the Bible says the wrath of God is poured out upon the person of Jesus Christ, uh, on him instead of us. And by God pouring out his wrath, Upon Christ, the sinless one, Christ willingly taking that punishment, the wrath against us is removed. Penalty has to be paid. Christ pays that penalty. It's called the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. Or you could also refer to it as the doctrine of deliverance. Because Christ is our deliverer. Again, 1 Thessalonians 1.10, Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. And it's through the person of Jesus Christ, who is the Prince of Peace, that we obtain peace with God. We have reconciliation, the removal of all hostilities between us and God that exists because of our sin and rebellion against Him. Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christmas is all about Him. And again, that's why Paul says in the book of Romans that God demonstrates His own love towards us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. Much more, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. We shall be delivered, rescued. 
So when we talk about Christ being the Savior, our Savior, we're talking about the fact that Christ is the Deliverer, our Deliverer. And when we come to faith in Christ, when we repent, place our faith in Him and become Christians, we are the Delivered. Delivered from this dangerous, deadly situation that we cannot extract ourselves from. That would be our sin. And the consequences of our sin, which again is both temporal and eternal, God has a judgment upon sin. And those who refuse to repent will face both. Those who have not been delivered, when the physical penalty is extracted, the wages of sin is death. For those who have not repented, those who have not been delivered, eternal suffering awaits in a literal place called hell. Eternal, literal, conscious, physical torment, endless pain, both physical and mental. And I think the greatest horror of hell for all eternity, for those who can never escape, is there's going to be an everlasting remembrance of the fact that they should not have been there. Because God in His great kindness and great mercy and great love has provided, had provided for them in time a substitute, a deliverer, whom they spurned, whom they rejected. That would be the person of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Because the Son of Man didn't come into the world to destroy men's lives. He came to save. He came to save because there's no other way to deal with the issue of sin. So to have a proper understanding of Christmas, you first understand that Jesus is God come in the flesh to be man's substitute, to deliver men, to save men from sin and its consequences. You need to understand, secondly, the nature and the character of God who sent him. He's a God of tender mercy, a God of great love who desires men to be saved. You need to understand, number three, that Christ, president of the world, just proves the fact there's nothing you can do to deal with the issue of your own sin apart from Christ. And apart from Christ, you'll perish. And the last point on my outline here is the thing you need to understand desperately is you need to see your need of him. You need to see your desperate need of him. Because God has sent Christ on a mission of mercy and deliverance. That's Christmas. A mission to save you from your sin. Because again, if there's any other way to deal with the issue of sin, then God the Father would never have sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world to die on Calvary's cross, but he did because there's no other way. Again, the angel telling Joseph uh, concerning Mary, she shall bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sin. Matthew one twenty one. Christ was sent and Christ came. Sent out of love. He comes out of love. He comes to deliver, to rescue, to save. And again, if there's any other way to deal with the issue of sin, the Father would have never sent the Son into the world. He certainly would never have punished him upon Calvary's cross, causing him to suffer and die as he did. But there is no other way. Sin must be punished and will be punished either by you for all eternity or by the substitute, by God's gracious substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, look at verse 12. If you're still there in John 1, the sad reality of the whole story is he's rejected by most of the world. He was in the world, and the world didn't know him. The world rejected him. Came to his own, verse 11, those who were his own did not receive him. But, verse 12, as many as received him, to them they gave the right to become children of God, even as those who believe in his name, who are not born of blood or the will of the flesh or the will of man but of God because God desires that you would be saved God has a great heart of compassion for you he desires that you would be saved face him in mercy not in wrath he desires that you would repent repent and come to Christ because again apart from the tender mercy of God there would be no Christmas there would be judgment condemnation but there's not Christ in the world. It's a celebration of deliverance. It's a celebration 
uh, of the deliverer. It's a celebration of the mercy of God. The tender mercy of God. And apart from the tender mercy of God, there'd be no hope. No hope, no help. We'd all still be in the, under the penalty of uh, eternal penalty for sin. We'd all be sitting in darkness and all still under the shadow of death. But the Bible says that Jesus Christ went to Calvary's cross, paid the penalty, and then three days later, what? Rose victoriously from the tomb. Conquering sin, conquering death. The debt's been paid. Life is avail available for those who want it. The great good news, the reality of Christmas, verse 14, the word became flesh, dwelt among us, we beheld his glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Our Father, we're thankful for this look into uh, your word and thankful for this look, uh, again, the light shining into darkness, the coming of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the great reality of your mercy and grace and redeeming love that you are a deliverer and you sent the the one who delivers, the one who rescues. We stand amazed at your, your kindness and your, and your mercy. Use your word to open eyes and ears and to have us who have tasted of that mercy to fall deeper and deeper in love with you. We praise you and we thank you for Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.